The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, otherwise it would be wrong. Monday, the 20th of June 2016, with just 12 days left in Australia's election campaign, Malcolm Turnbull judges his nuts. Very good, very superior Macedonia. Rake's Cleaver Green notices a shift in the political rhetoric. Have you noticed? There seems to be a lot of wanking going on these days. Are you, are you with that? I mean, it didn't used to be like that in our day, did it? And Nicholas Fryer offers some advice about something or other. This is the 9pm carousel of cluelessness. T minus 12 days and counting. And apart from a lot of wanking going on, I don't know whether you've noticed, but there's a lot of fuckwits in the world, Uh, not just in the election campaign, obviously, but that's where we do have to start this episode, right? And over the past 24 hours, the big issue, at least on Twitter, and obviously what's big on Twitter is the arbiter of all taste and focus for attention, has been this campaign advertisement by the Liberal Party of Australia. Let me get this right. Mr Shorten wants to go to war with my bank. He wants to go to war with our miners. Bill Shorten even wants to go to war with someone like me. He just wants to get ahead through an investment property. Well, I'll tell you what happens when you get a war going on the economy. People like me lose their jobs. So I reckon we should just see it through and stick with the current mob for a while. Authorised T-Nut, Liberal Party, Canberra. This advert has become renowned on Twitter and across the uh, wankosphere today as fake tradie because the collective wisdom of the world is he doesn't look like a tradie. I, I wish to point out to people that the people in television commercials are what we call actors. They're not necessarily really what they portray themselves as. But moving beyond that, we had all sorts of people saying, oh, you know, he's uh, wearing an expensive watch, which you wouldn't do on a building site. Uh, That looks like an OH&S violation with him not wearing a hard hat. Why has he got a ceramic cup that would break on a building site? And one I noticed He's depicted sitting in a quiet street with no traffic, and yet in the background we have cliched traffic noises. Now, the Liberal Party uh, this afternoon has said, no, 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 the guy really is a tradie. All right, we'll have to take them at their word for the time being. But if you want to see some discussion of how real his tradiness is or isn't, uh, go to junkie.com. They did a vox pop of some actual tradies, uh, showed them the ad, and they just weren't convinced. They just thought this is not how we speak on the building site. And I think that's where this ad falls down. If the ad is trying to connect with actual tradespeople, which is presumably its aim, then the target audience has to identify with the person in the ad. And they're seeing a relaxed chap in a a kind of rather clean set of clothes with a coffee cup standing around in the street, whereas all the tradies in in the Vox Pop that Junkie.com did, 
they're covered in mud, they're tired, they're getting on with work, they're, they're speaking a very different kind of language indeed. Now, I wanted to get that out of the way because, quite frankly, to focus on this one ad is to miss the broader point, although I do want to throw in one last issue. Uh, if the Liberal Party is supposedly the party of business, why are they suggesting that buying into the property boom uh, at the height of the market is a good investment? Isn't the uh, property bubble about to burst? Although, as uh, someone reminded me on Twitter earlier today, the bubble has been about to burst for the last 15 years. So it's made a very good rubber, this uh, Sydney property market. No, no, no. Let's not focus on that one ad. Let's focus on the the raft of stupidity, the herd of hilarity. That is the set of candidates being put up by the two major political parties because that's just been so, so funny and really so, so incompetent. Labor, for example, put up David Feeney, who seemed to be suffering from memory loss. When Fairfax contacted Mr Feeney uh, to find out why he didn't live in his seat of Batman, uh, the MP explained to us that he and his wife do actually own a house uh, in the um, suburb of Northcote, which is of course in the city of, uh, in the seat of Batman, and that it's currently being renovated with uh, the couple planning to move in once those renovations have been uh, completed. This is uh, Fairfax journalist James Basola speaking a couple of weeks back now. That prompted us to look a bit deeper into what exactly was going on here. The first thing we looked at was the Register of Members' Interests, which every MP uh, has to file, which contains details about their bank accounts, the properties, the shares, uh, all manner of details about their financial uh, holdings, if you like. Mr Feeney, as it turned out, had never declared that he owned this house in Northcote. So the next step that we took was to do a property title search with the land titles office. That revealed to us the address of the house in the uh, suburb of Northcote. Once we'd done that, my colleague Richard Willingham uh, visited the house in Northcote and ascertained that it was in fact uh, rented, that it wasn't being renovated, and he spoke to a few uh, of the sort of neighbours in the area who said they were aware of these renovation plans, but that nothing had actually taken place, which contradicts what Mr Feeney had said. The land title search also revealed that the property was purchased for around $2.3 million, which is a rather expensive asset to forget to declare on the Register of Members' Interests. Now, um, the other thing that sort of stood out in my conversation with uh, Mr Feeney this afternoon is he wasn't actually clear if the property was negatively geared or not. Now, uh, given that there's been such uh, discussion in the federal campaign so far around negative gearing, it seems like a strange uh, uh, fact to be not clear about. Notice how uh, real journalism is done. It involves looking up documents, searching for things and getting out of the office, going for a drive and talking to people. You don't see much of that... uh in the IT journalism field. Seems to be more about uh, copying and pasting as many press releases as you can plough through, maybe uh, getting a quote from uh, the vendor about their own products. Yeah, I'm guilty of that myself, but uh, 
If you don't play that game, you suddenly don't get invited to all the things because you're not towing the party line. Maybe uh, the IT field and IT vendors like car manufacturers, like travel places, need to remember that the journalists are not the same thing as PR representatives and if they want their uh, message regurgitated the way they want it, then they should be talking to the advertising department, not the editorial department. But back to Mr Feeney, David Feeney, you might also remember he was the goose who left his party's uh, confidential talking points memo lying around a radio studio and who couldn't uh, differentiate or couldn't explain one of his own party's policies on television. Labor had another problem today, though, uh, where they found that their candidate, Christian Kunda, uh, had to leave because he had uh, defended previously a senior member of the extremist Islamic group Hizb Uttariya, and he'd also delivered a lecture Comparing gay marriage to incest. Well, that uh, doesn't go down too well in a modern democracy. Maybe Labour hadn't checked him out as well to see that he'd previously been a member of that uh, significant and historical uh, political group, the Bullet Train for Australia Party. Oh, dear. Well, that's Christian Kunda down, that's David Feeney down, but let's not give the impression that it's only Labour with these problems. The Liberal Party has its own little joyous selection of candidates. A Liberal Party candidate has been forced to resign after it emerged a brothel and escort service was registered to his address. John Sue, who was running for the electorate of Caldwell in Victoria, denies any link to the agency called Paradise Playmates. In a statement, the Liberal Party said he had not fully declared his business interests. But what that uh, Channel 9 report, which I picked up uh, from the Daily Mail, doesn't fully declare either, is that in the state of Victoria, sex work, such as through a brothel, is in fact a perfectly legal business. That the reason the Liberal Party got rid of the guy is presumably a kind of moral judgment that one sort of legitimate business is okay, but another kind of legitimate business is not. Now, there have also been allegations that perhaps not everything to do with Mr Sue's business interests are completely according to the rule book, but that too is another issue. I'm not sure that we should just be sacking candidates on the basis of some moral choice when their business is otherwise perfectly legal. But that's just one of the Liberal Party's problems. My favourite is another of their candidates, uh, Chris German. A Liberal candidate has fled from reporters after he was unable to explain his party's position on the Medicare rebate freeze. Chris German, who's running for the Labor-held marginal seat of McEwen, had earlier tried to gatecrash an event for the opposition leader. The Liberal candidate gatecrashed Bill Shorten's visit. If you're good enough to turn up to meet one leader in this election, I'm good enough to shake your hand. Chris German's ambush backfired when he failed to explain his own party's Medicare policy. Look, our Medicare policy is... 
I absolutely know our, well, can, our Medicare Can you explain the, med- the Liberals' Medicare uh, policy will, to us? I will be packing up our listening post rather than standing here in the rain and being interrogated by you. Lauren Ginoli, Nine News. I do love Chris German's characterisation of being asked, what's your party's policy as being interrogated? And although... You know, there's kind of gotcha style in journalism about can you name the 10 points of this or the 100 points of that and if you, you know, miss out on one, then you've somehow failed as a politician. I think this does cut to the point because Chris German was gatecrashing an event at a community health centre where the very subject was health policy and he didn't know what was going on. That's a couple of weeks back now. What I think is more fun and that has come to to light since then is that Chris German may have told a fib when registering as a candidate. Turns out that the address he said was his residential address when he registered as a candidate doesn't have a house on it. He doesn't actually live there. And this came to light, again, through a bit of journalism, well easy journalism, looking up his Facebook posts where he's whinging about fast food places not delivering meals to him properly and he's talking about a different suburb. Watch this space. That's a marginal seat. You can bet that the Liberal Party will be fighting very hard to keep their candidate in place, even though he's a goose. Now, I did say that Chris German was my favourite. Actually, it's not quite true. My very favourite bit of stupidity is is a subtle one. It's from uh, our current treasurer, Scott Morrison. Elections are about choices, and I think we have to be very clear about what the choices are at this election. Um, There would be no pundit out there at the moment that is actually uh, projecting the formation of a, a Labor government in its own right. Hang on, what did he say just then? There would be no pundit out there at the moment. That's interesting because that word for a political expert and commentator, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, is pronounced like this. Pundit. And it comes from an old Sanskrit word for a Hindu scholar who's learned in philosophy and religion. And that word is pronounced like this. Pandit. And how is Scott Morrison pronouncing it? There would be no pundit out there at the moment. I see. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to the Edict. If I happen to sound a little bit flat, a little bit uninspired this episode, it's because I have been sick as a dog for more than a week now. I am getting better, thank you for asking, but I do still have a head and throat and chest full of stuff which I won't describe because some of you may be eating. However, that has given me time to catch up on videos and to do a bit of reflection, and both of those activities have come together in Series 4 of Rake, the ABC television drama, Uh, about, well, it's a drama comedy. It's sort of about uh, Cleaver Green. You heard some of his wisdom at the very start of the program, played by Richard Roxburgh. Roxburgh. And uh, I had worried that Series 4 would be a little weird because Series 3 ended on almost a fantasy note, 
But no, it's come back together and there is some particularly sharp writing. Here is, uh, for example, Cleaver Green's observation that uh, the world doesn't necessarily turn out as we all might dream. There are more people our age than there are atoms in a cow. And we're all getting older and we all want to change our lives. Soon there'll be nothing left but films about old people <gasps> getting a new lease on life or re-sparking a marriage they thought was dead and buying an English language bookshop in Sardinia and drinking bottles of Chianti and watching perfect sunsets with their old friends, including one curmudgeonly bloke who's really just lonely and one uneducated local who's keeps promising to fix everything and he never does and everybody loves him anyway and it's all just bullshit. What isn't bullshit, at least in my view, is this idea that rake is pretty much a documentary about how Sydney and New South Wales works. All right, it shows at one level a kind of fantasy, almost comedy level of corruption and interdependency of the police and the politicians and lawyers and criminals and so on and so forth. And it's easy to dismiss that as fiction. If you were writing a drama about police corruption, would you name your lead character Roger Rogerson? Because that's the reality of New South Wales. Here's a clip from an episode of ABC TV's 7.30 last week. In the 70s and 80s, Roger Rogerson was the most decorated detective in the New South Wales armed hold-up squad. But behind his impressive arrest rate were ruthless methods and close links to Sydney's underworld. You must create fear um, and crims, be they cuff crims, hard crims, they feared certain police officers. And I was one of those police officers. Roger Rogerson became a household name when he shot dead 23-year-old Warren Lanfranchi, who was a drug dealer like Jamie Gow. A meeting arranged in a back street, Lanfranchi hit by two shots, one in the chest, one in the head, fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. He said he didn't know what time he'd be home, but if he wasn't home by six o'clock, then I'd know he was, he'd been killed. Now, if you're wondering why all this was on 7.30 last week, the clue is that other name you just heard in the report, Jamie Gow, because there's a link between Jamie Gow and Roger Rogerson. He and another former policeman, Glenn McNamara, were found guilty of murder after a four-month trial. A jury convicted Rogerson and McNamara of luring 20-year-old drug supplier Jamie Gow to his death in order to steal nearly three kilograms of ice. Previously, Rogerson had killed people on police duty and been accused of a string of serious crimes, including attempted murder, but until today was only ever convicted of perjury and minor offences. Now, I don't know that I'd uh, call perverting the course of justice a minor offence because Rogerson did nearly four years in jail for that. But uh, this is where fantasy and reality kind of get confused because in the series Rake, the... uh, the former corrupt uh, police minister, after he comes out of jail, 
gets a TV career as a talk show host. Well, in the real world, after Rogerson got out of jail and after he did some work in the scaffolding business and uh, doing some other bits and pieces, he went on the talk circuit doing a, a spoken word show with footballers Warwick Kappa and Jacko Jackson and then later teamed up for a different stage show with convicted criminal Chopper Reed. To add a further twist to it all, there was a, a TV miniseries made years ago about Rogerson called Blue Murder and playing the part of Rogerson was Richard Roxburgh who plays Cleaver Green, Rake, in Rake. And that series was considered so close to the bone that it was actually under court order forbidden to be shown in the state of New South Wales for some six years after it was made. And to close the loop even further, after we recorded the previous episode of this podcast, this very podcast, just two weeks ago in Hurstville, I went to have dinner at another pub in Hurstville, the Meridian Hotel. The Meridian Hotel is where Rogerson had his meetings with Jamie Gow in the lead-up to the eventual assassination. And if you have a look for photographs of the Meridian Hotel Hurstville on Google Images, you will find pictures of Jamie Gow and surveillance camera footage from the hotel showing the room that I walked through just two weeks ago. Everything joins up in Sydney and crime is just beneath the thinnest of surface veneers. After Rogerson was found uh, guilty last week, I uh, treated myself to watching that original series of Blue Murder. Uh, if you hunt around yourself, you'll probably find one on the Tube of Views or other such places. I'm sure you know where to find things on the internet. Um, and it's a remarkable series. It holds up quite well. And when you compare the footage of Roger Rogerson that was shown on TV last week with uh, the uh, the portrayal of him by Richard Roxburgh so many years ago, it's uncanny how uh, how well it it, it was acted. Um, I also understand that sixty minutes did a special last week on uh, on uh, Rogerson. Uh, you'll have to dig that one out for yourself. I didn't have time to do it before this podcast. Uh, speaking of not having time to do things, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. As I've indicated over recent episodes, uh, this is the last one for June and therefore the last one before Australia's election on July the 2nd. Starting in the new financial year, there will be a more regular schedule for this podcast and a much clarified way for you to uh, subscribe, to uh, make one-off contributions and so on. It will take me some distance into July to get all that together, but I will commit now to uh, putting together one episode 
in July at some point to kick off that new schedule. So stay tuned for announcements about that and especially about the uh, the ways in which you can contribute because, as you know, this podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions. Thank you this episode to Keith Duddy for your uh your advice as well as your generous uh, contribution. Uh, As I say, more on that in the next few weeks. And now it's time for Nicholas Fryer and a look through the arch window. Time for the mailbag this week, and I'll start with a Snapchat from Patricia from Coogee. Paddy asks, Dear Mr Window... Why is everything fucked? Well, Paddy, there are a number of theories about this, but here's what I think is a major contributing factor. For those who haven't heard of it, in 1999, David Dunning and Justin Kruger published the results of a series of experiments which measured the self-perception of competence. The most famous finding, now ubiquitised as the Dunning-Kruger effect, is that one of the things that incompetent people are incompetent at is assessing their own level of competence when compared with everyone else. That is, stupid, useless people often think that they're better at whatever they're doing than everyone else because they're too stupid to realise how useless they are. I'm sure you've met the type. You may even have elected one to high office. What's not often appreciated about the work is the consequences for the world of their findings as they relate to the competent. It's been widely reported that D&K found that clever, able people consistently slightly underrate their own performance as compared to everyone else. The mistake they make is assuming that everyone else is pretty much as good as they are about things, or at least a good deal better than they actually are. And it's here that I think we have the sting in the tail. Note that we're not talking about super geniuses here, not the people who make generation-shaping discoveries or create whole new art forms. We're talking about the people who are smart enough to tackle intricate and complicated jobs and dedicated enough to spend the time learning to do them well. We're talking about the people who do things. Build cities. Install and maintain infrastructure. Heal the sick. Teach children. Make music. Draft legislation. Mediate disputes. Write novels. Stay married. Make food and clothing. Design everything. Everything. Wind turbines, medical databases, bureaucratic organisations, ground support aircraft, covert intelligence protocols, even psychological tests to inflict upon impoverished undergraduates. All of those people carry out their jobs in the grip of a persistent delusion that the rest of the world is just slightly less stupid and incompetent than you actually are. But of course, they're intelligent and capable people, so they must regularly trip over evidence of the true state of affairs, which like all cognitive dissonances, must jar. In other words, everything in the world that even vaguely works was built by someone in a state of persistent low-level irritation caused by their unmet expectation that they're not surrounded by idiots. Be grateful anything works at all. The next one's from Silvano, who writes, My Google is broken. Can you suggest a good breakfast to make to impress a new lover? Good to hear from you, Sil. Hope the prostate's better. Here's the dish I always make for a first-time sleepover of a new special friend. You need one squid, two dragon fruits, half a cup of blackberries, and one plastic bag. While your new beloved slumbers, squeeze the blackberries through some muslin and set aside the resulting juice. 
The pulp can be discarded or kept for drizzling on ice cream. As with all cooking, the key to success here is the freshness of the ingredients and timing during preparation. The squid must be absolutely new caught and preferably still alive. Squid are used to living in the benthic depths after all and will survive easily, if not overly happily, overnight in a pot of salty water in the fridge. A word on equipment. This is a messy dish and some authorities suggest it's best prepared naked. Personally, I always put on a white coat and rubber gloves, and it's best, if you can get them, to don the sort of all-enclosing protective goggles that demonstrators wear in high school chemistry labs. Once you're kitted up, it's time to go. First, place a few drops of the blackberry juice up each nostril. When you tilt your head forward, the juice will run down your upper lip in a pair of brightly coloured streams. Next, gently remove the bedclothes from your playmate of the night before, taking care not to disturb their slumbers. Then grasp the live squid in one hand and swiftly mash it into their anogenital region. As they come suddenly to appalled consciousness, allow them a brief glimpse of the thrashing tentacles, then stuff it into the plastic bag, which should be transparent for full effect. At that point, look down at your mate's interesting bits and say, in a tone of choking horror, "'It's started sporulating!' Reach back between their legs, grab a couple of dragon fruit and toss them onto their chest before running, making a strange ululating sound from the room. Trust me on this, it's an experience they'll never forget. Dear Nick, why does this week's episode sound like it's made up of a series of unconnected snippets that you threw together at the last minute because you were too busy to write a proper one? And will you close by descending into a half-arsed Dada-esque seriality, writes a wildebeest made of marshmallow from Esperance. I don't have to do this, you know. My mum wanted me to be a lawyer. I know I've been in a serious mood for most of this podcast. Uh, What with the murder and organised crime and uh, even being unable to work myself up into a a suitable rage at the sheer stupidity of both major political parties in being completely unable to choose adequate candidates for their own teams. Uh, I guess this introspective state has stayed with me uh, despite all of the silliness that I'd part scripted. I had, in fact, selected some elephant stamps to hand out to people deserving of them, people who had been excellent in the category of thinking, but I'm honestly not in the mood for them. Instead, there's there's a thought that's sitting in the back of my mind, and it's one that's there quite often. And I can summarise that best by asking you, do you know first aid? Not do you know how to you know, deal with a blood nose or a scratch or or deal with a bee sting or, you know, all of that kind of crap. I mean, if someone is in front of you having a heart attack or having a stroke or they suffer an accident and they're bleeding profusely, do you actually know what to do? Or would you be one of the sheep standing around gaping and waiting for someone else to solve the problem? Or even worse, would you be one of the people going, oh, better film that on my phone, what's going on? And being even more part of the problem rather than part of the solution. 
I find myself wondering about that and looking at people around me and wondering what their answer might be. Because in the past, uh, when there's been an incident and someone needs to uh, administer first aid or at least take control of the situation to stop it uh, becoming worse, I've usually been the one sorting that out. So what happens if I have a heart attack in the street? What happens if I have a stroke? What happens if I'm bleeding? Am I going to be the one sitting in the middle of the circle slowly dying because everyone else is slack-jawed and gaping, standing around? Probably. And that depresses me. And then I start wondering whether self-reliance, robustness, resilience is something that's fading away. Or is that just me going, oh, you young folk, you never learn anything, go around, get off my lawn? I don't know. But the other day, I heard something which which resonated with that thought. There's an American by the name of Austin Tice. He's a freelance journalist. And he disappeared in Syria around four years ago. His family says they've had what they call credible recent reports that he's still alive, but there's been no direct communication. Uh, The last actual clear piece of evidence they had was four years ago, just six weeks after he vanished, when there was a video showing him being led blindfolded up a hillside by armed, masked men. And we've seen enough videos over recent years to know what that might uh, eventually lead to. So here we have um, a journalist who's disappeared, his family worried about him, they're trying to, uh, to raise awareness of his case, there's a hashtag, Free Austin Tice, Tice is T-I-C-E, and if you want to hear about that, it's actually quite fascinating, there was uh, an episode of the On The Media radio program and podcast from WNYC in New York. I've put the link on the website. Have a listen. It's a 17-minute segment. But there's one section in that where the presenter, Bob Garfield, reads out the words of Austin Tice explaining why he went to Syria. And he adds this comment at the end. Have a listen. Our granddads stormed Normandy and Iwo Jima and defeated global fascism. Neil Armstrong flew to the moon in a glorified trash can, doing math on a clipboard as he went. Before there were roads, the pioneers put one foot in front of the other until they walked across the entire continent. Then a bunch of them went down to fight and die in Texas because they thought it was the right thing to do. Sometime between when our granddads licked the Nazis and when we started putting warnings on our coffee cups about the temperature of our beverage, America lost that pioneering spirit. We became a fat, weak, complacent, coddled, unambitious, and cowardly nation. So that's why I came here to Syria, and it's why I like being here now, right now, right in the middle of a brutal and still uncertain civil war. Uh, This is beyond intrepid. This is a manifesto about a life with purpose. 12 days until the federal election, Australians. Vote early, vote often. I'm Stilgerian. I'll see you in the next episode.
The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.